listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. One of the things that we come across as meditators, regardless of our tradition, it might be com- contemplative Christianity, it might be Buddhism, it might be Advaita, uh, it might be Kabbalah, it might be a- any one of the traditions. When we get to a space where we start really slowing down, where stillness is really part of the experience, there is a felt recognition of no thing or nothing you call it that but that there is no thing present in this naked awareness in this felt recognition of stillness it's very hard to get there uh, as as you might might experience when we sit in meditation together, oftentimes, like I've said, the mind is just constantly churning and burning, okay? And we're constantly interpreting and reinterpreting and categorizing and pushing this over here and filing that over there, you know. All that's going on in some really significant ways, so much so that we can't turn it off. And if we can't turn it off, it's, it's very hard to meet up with this spaciousness. But when we do, we recognize that along with this spaciousness comes a recognition that there are positively no guarantees. There are positively no guarantees of anything. And this wreaks havoc on the ego's sense of what should be and what is needed or what is wrong. Ego immediately looks at that as being like something's wrong and what is needed is something to, you know, fill that gap so that the uh, dam doesn't break. You know, it, it immediately puts ego into this really interesting space. But that's the whole point. The whole point is to set up a scenario where we can begin to study the source of all of our pain, of all of our suffering, of all of our anxiety, of all of our felt negativity, all of this stuff. All of this stuff can be put into some very, very interesting perspective when we start recognizing that there really isn't anything to pray to when we get beyond ego. Ego can pray to all sorts of stuff. Ego can create egoic negotiations with all sorts of things. Oh God, if you only let me do this, then I will, you know, it's very natural, 
but it's still on the level of egoic negotiation. What's beyond that is a still appreciation for the fact that there are no guarantees anywhere, anytime. And yet we still live. There's a tremendous freedom from that place of recognizing that there are no guarantees. When we recognize that there are no guarantees, we start recognizing that there's nothing that's really needed other than what we have. What we have is the perfect amount. So anything else that arrives or arises in our experience is icing. We start recognizing that nothing along these lines, that nothing is wrong. And if we are at this recognition that nothing is wrong, then there's no resistance. If there's no resistance, then miraculously we have slid right past the need for anger. We've slipped right past the need for hatred. So one of the things about Buddhism that always intrigued me is uh, I was introduced to this, this process of continual and perpetual surrender to this no need, nothing wrong, the recognition that there were no guarantees. And yet we still take that recognition of no guarantees and apply it to the way that we live. One of the things that really intrigued, intrigued me about this was that the Buddha, when asked, you know, what is enlightenment? Of course, we've discussed this before, but the Buddha said, it's the end of suffering. He didn't say what it was. He said what it wasn't. And this end of suffering is so similar to the, uh, the Christian. I'm, I'm always reminded, I always talk about this. I love this, this uh, quote, uh, this biblical quote where um, Christ says, look at the, li look at the lily see it grow, it neither toils nor spins. It just arises as a gift to all who come near it. The lily is not suffering and struggling in its process. It comes from that place. If we also come from that place of infinite bloom, then the way we participate in the world can't help but be generous and that generosity for the all every person everything when our activity comes from that place of generosity we change ourselves and we change everything else we become the change we wish to see in the world 
So not to uh, contradict the Buddha, I mean, he's kind of an authority, you know, on this whole suffering thing. But um, if we stop at that point, that it's the end of suffering, then we've gone precisely up the mountain, but we haven't come back down. We haven't brought it home with us. And this actually, I think, is one of the one of the problems that we can run into is that we just reckon, wait, if I just live in the now, then everything takes care of itself. Well, to a degree, yeah. But it's also a continual unfolding of that. It's a continual giving from that place of infinite space where there are no guarantees. We recognize there are no guarantees and that systematically starts helping us recognize that nothing else is needed and that nothing ultimately is wrong. Yet we still participate in the world where it is needed. Racism, sexism, prejudice, war, whatever it happens to be, whatever your issue, the environment, whatever your issue happens to be, we're still able to participate fully in that experience, but it's no longer war. It's a constructive engagement. And this can be really quite beautiful. We participate in this engagement knowing that there's no finality. And this is really, really non-egoic. Knowing that there are no guarantees, there is, there's no finality, in other words. Seekers love finding finality, okay? Because seeker, to seek in, in, in any type of spiritual sense, while it may be uh, pulled by the big self, it's, it's very much a small self endeavor. Spiritual seeking is about finding answers, right? Ego wants to know. And as long as we are seekers, ego is still in charge. And seekers, seekers look for an endpoint. They look for certainty. And they either crave or resist anything that undermines this sense of finality. Egos will crave or resist anything that undermines this sense of finality. It will crave or resist the idea that there are no guarantees. So, a very simple, elemental way out of this trap, the trap that wants guarantees, that in us which wants certainty, is to just watch. This is the teaching. We just watch. 
We don't judge. We watch and silently witness with a discriminating awareness. This discriminating awareness, be really clear about this, how this is different than judgment. Judgment has ego mixed into it. It's seen as positive or negative. It has uh, been imbued with emotion, with uh, baggage, with the, you know stuff like that. It's been given a story. It's been given a place. It's been either honored or reviled, whatever. It's been given some type of, of movement, you know, some type of placement. Discriminating awareness is what we practice in meditation where we just remain totally open to whatever arises and we can recognize it as, ah, that's feeling. And that's thought or thinking. Feeling. We can even get more specific. Worry. Jealousy. Tenderness. Feeling of tenderness. You know, whatever. We can go in that space. And if we're not careful, that can become judgment. But a discriminating awareness takes ego out of that mix. Instead of tenderness, tenderness is good. I like tenderness. Instead of that, it's just tenderness. Openness. And the more open you get, the harder it is to find words. The more open we get, the harder it is for us to find words to label the experience. Except that we recognize fundamentally that in that experience, there are no guarantees. You know, I have been trying to label my thoughts lately, especially... Um, you know, you had told us that our mind just does three things, remembering the past, making a judgment, and then thinking about the future or planning. But sometimes I feel like, um, that can also become, um, like a busy body activity is what well, I think when about. When you mean when you label? When I try to label, mm -hmm. yeah, and that can become obsessive. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't watch yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ego's going to want to get in. Now, now, ready for the trick to that one? Mm -hmm. Is watching that. As it becomes obsessive, there's something in you that recognizes that it became obsessive, right? That's an awakened mind. Okay. Okay. And again, that's just, that literally is just a practice of total tenderness it's not about i mean it's, that in you which can watch getting caught is free right so then what do you do just if you watch take a deep breath and clear your mind <laughs> that is a great place to start john that's it. <laughs> just take a deep breath and keep going okay. 
I don't. I have a comment about tonight, but la but last week mm. you were talking about um, establishing a goal, but not mm -hmm. not a goal as we traditionally think of it. But um, and then f following with intent mm -hmm. um, or proceeding on a daily basis with intent. Um, and I've been thinking about that. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you would just say a little bit more about What do you really want? Suzuki Roshi used to say, I love this quote, he used to say, the most important thing is to discover what the most important thing is. And the minute we start discovering what the most important thing is or uncovering what the most important thing is within our hearts and minds is the minute life takes on a whole new look and feel. So once that um, step is taken towards the questioning, what is the most important thing? That question begins to guide then every single, every single bit of movement. What is the most important thing? And the minute that most important thing centers around the uncovery, if you want to call it discovery, you can, but I like the term uncovery of truth, the truth that goes beyond name and form, the truth that goes beyond my version of truth and your version of truth, our sense of truth. The minute that kind of huge truth begins to become some sort of a felt answer to that question, what is the most important thing? There's an intentionality that begins to just move us in that direction that goes beyond ego. Ego suddenly at that point can't quite control it, especially the minute it gets to this point of this is for the sake of every single thing on this planet in this universe. It becomes a selfless expression because the self is seen as being totally the same as everything else. That's a real radical shift. And it takes, you know, time to get there. It takes stillness to orient itself and reorient itself again and again and again through us. That's very natural. Very not. In fact, it's it's the most natural thing there is, if you want to call it that. <laughs> now, what did you want to say about tonight? <laughs> no, I've been thinking right. a lot about last week. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I guess my question is that I notice that some of the things you're saying happen and I feel this compassion or I feel, I feel lots of feelings, but it seems to be accompanied by what feels to me to be an awful lot of like, I guess it's my ego. I just feel incredibly cranky a lot mm. and I'm kind of shocked by that because it's like feeling these larger feelings and then being keep being brought up short by yeah 
this kind of just cranky, critical, witchy feeling or yeah. something. <laughs> no. Help me with uh, um, why you think that might be happening based on what you know of this dharma, of this teaching. What, what, what do you think is going on? Well, you know, when I th- now that you say it, I think there's a lot of resistance. I think I've spent a lot of my life resisting some things mm-hmm. passively or openly and and I'm kind of sort of going down the stream and then I think I start to resist and it makes me feel really cranky. Who is it that's resisting? <laughs> My ego, I guess. Yeah. Because the ego's got two things. It's either it's not enough, you know, it needs something. Or something's not right. Something's too much. Right? And so in either of those two spaces, there's tons of mileage for it to reclaim its position as manager, you know, <laughs> whatever, you want, whatever you want to call it. And what usually this practice of stillness, conscious stillness brings out is uh, a whoops, uh-uh, and that always shows up <laughs> as some something cranky. Sometimes it's vicious, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But cranky is such a great way to describe it. It's this undercurrent of uh-uh, right? Mm-hmm. And that undercurrent of uh-uh is just a low-level resistance. So instead of letting go of the rock and floating okay it's letting go of the rock and still getting hit around knocked into the other rocks right for a little while before that flotation actually occurs so as the best jewish mother i'm telling you (laughs) this is natural (laughs) oi um in one of your talks you were talking about um in your practice, it can be a light practice, medium practice, or Guinness practice. Guinness. Guinness. Guinness heavy. practice. Instead yeah. of the lager or amber. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have no idea where that came from. You said it. Yeah, I did. You're right. I did. I did say it. <laughs> and um, I started thinking about that. Uh, and you said you get the most out of a deep practice. And does a deep practice come from time or quantity, quality? How do you get to that without um, burning yourself out? Right. Um, I think I spoke to this a little bit, but I one of the things when I... Uh, as I jumped onto this path, I went into it full of resistance, kicking and screaming the whole way, the whole way. I was not going to be a sheep. I was not going to blindly follow some Zen master or some guru. I mean, history is replete with these people who make stupid decisions because they're vulnerable, and I was not going to be in that space, and yada, 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 right? Now, that was probably a pretty healthy 
way of going into it, but it was precisely what got in my way of deep practice. So what I did is I just kind of went along shallow practice for a number of years until I recognized that I, I feel actually comfortable taking this to the next level. There was much less in me that felt like I wanted to resist and more in me that felt like it needed some more. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So half of the ego equation, equation was still there. Okay. At the first, first part, the shallow part of practice, I still saw there's, there's stuff that's needed and there's a lot to resist. And then trust kind of came into this. Surrender kind of came into this. And I recognized I don't have to be afraid. These people are good people. And I'm not so bad either. There was self-acceptance that kind of went into that too. So I could trust mm -hmm. them and I could trust me with them and them with me. And then, then what happened? So now I'm in medium practice, mid-level. And then I started recognizing through others this paradox of light, medium, and deep. And the ones who are at deep practice I admired so much. I could see, hear, taste, touch, and feel a resonance in them that I wanted. But I knew that the I that was doing the wanting was going to have to leave in order for that to happen. And the way the I kind of got out of that was through the recognition that um, there was nothing needed. All it was, all deep practice was, is, and shall be, is recognizing that there are no guarantees and acting from that realization in the world. That it's the end of suffering, the end of suffering, and a conscious participation from that place in the world. And you just do that again and again and again and again and again. Now, I don't think it necessarily takes everybody as long as it took me. I don't think people need to sit for 15 years. It was helpful, but what was really helpful in doing for me was bringing about uh, a deep humility, radical humility that I couldn't control everything, that it's, there are no guarantees. And the minute that recognition kind of happens, you rec when you recognize that everything is totally temporary, and everything is totally interdependent. The minute that recognition happens, then it's so easy to see that everything is God-infused. Everything is God, as I've said before, just winking at us all the time. Even when you're cranky. <laughs> so to get to a deep practice, it doesn't take a lot of 
self-discipline and energy. It's just like just patience. I think it takes patience with a lot of self-discipline and energy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in order for that self that is being disciplined to reach a place of radical humility. And it's continual. It's continual. Just keep on. Keep on keeping mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much.